Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas On. You know, this month is October, and we're sort of celebrating the wonderful world of villains. Uh, so our villainous bloggers are on here today, Jared Wells. Hi. And Olivia Allen. Hello. And Duncan Kennedy. Hello. And I'm Bob Allen, and we're going to talk about villains. Olivia, tell us where you went here. Okay, so I, uh, I'm a college student. In my classes and in my my personal life and my life as a writer, I study a lot of mythology and folklore and religion. It, the definitions get kind of finicky when it comes to those words, so I'm, I'm going to say them all, but I think there's overlap. Um, I find it fascinating, and I really love the stories. And so that was one of the angles I took with the blog I wrote. And also, I think especially, not necessarily especially nowadays, but in America right now, we are seeing it a lot if we are paying attention, and tensions are high this month. So there's uh, the thing where narratives can be created to vilify groups of people to try to not be too political, but I think we get the idea. False narratives vilifying marginalized groups of people becomes a real problem. Anyway, I um, am a woman, so I wanted to go at it from that angle um, because I can speak to that. And so the study of women in mythology and folklore is really interesting. And sometimes it shows up in stories of the creation of womankind sometimes where women clearly are established as the evil ones. The Pandora story, um, I suppose you could see it in the Eve story in the Bible, but I am not an expert on the Bible, so I'm not going to claim to have a lot of knowledge on that. But Hesiod's Pandora story is a time. Um, and then sometimes there's there's figures, a lot of the times they represent things that, that, um, that are feared by people in my culture, at least. But I think death is something of a universal fear for humans because it's a mystery. And so a lot of death goddesses or death entities like banshees or other spectral beings turn into monsters and villains and in modern folklore or in old stories not in modern folklore like modern fiction comic books video games um i think it's sad because these are great characters and fascinating and complex and you lose the nuance and it's interesting to explore why that happens, and it makes me mad because I really like these mythological figures. And on a deeper level, it's important to understand that oftentimes people or who are um, painted as villains might not be. Great, great. Jared, where'd you go? Well, I also sort of was trying to wrap my mind around the definition of a villain. And of course, in storytelling, there's no more fundamental conflict than that of, of good and evil. And generally the hero falls on the good, the villain represents the evil. But obviously life doesn't work like that. There's, there's not such binary terms that can qualify real human beings. And so when you get into fiction, um, particularly when it comes to very simple stories, especially like, you know, superheroes, not, not, not so much nowadays, but sort of how you think of, of when Batman and Superman and all of that were, were at their beginnings. They were very clearly defined villains. These are clearly the bad guys. I mean, there still are today, but um, discussing 
what qualities about those about villains make them truly villainous. I think when you boil it down to the essential qualities, um, there's there there isn't too much of a, a difference between a hero and and a villain. It truly is a matter of perspective, as is very evident. I think in in life, in many ways, in politics, it's it's a matter of where you see the good and where you see the evil. And uh, I think villains become very interesting foils for people to compare themselves to because you know if you're a hero you're essentially hopefully doing the thing the right things for the right reasons if you're doing the wrong things for the right reasons i guess you would be called an anti-hero which personally i tend to like more than villains but um struggling with with those terminologies um as a writer is something that uh, it always causes me to to re-examine how i think about building characters and I think that around Halloween time, it's it's great to to take a look at your favorite villains and and see how you can uh, find new character traits and and, and ways to um, to paint morality in not such a black and white way. Cool, Duncan, where'd you come from? Um, I uh, came at it from more of a standpoint of, of due diligence in terms of character development. Just because somebody does bad things doesn't necessarily mean that they are a villain. Um, they make qualify them as, as a bad guy, as, as Jared mentioned. But, you know, looking at, uh, you know, the James Bond movies, for instance, uh, there was a long string of them where there was a different bad guy in every James Bond movie, especially in the 80s. And we never had enough time to really get to know them, nor really care about their master plan to destroy the world. They were just this foil for evil, but they weren't really a true villain or didn't get to that upper strata of us understanding enough of their character, whether it's depravity or a twisted warp view of the world or whatever it was, that was their motivation for them to be that bad. And many times it's not so much that they want to be the worst person in the world or they want to do the worst things in the world. It's that they have a twisted view of what the world has done to them or a twisted sense of unfairness for what has happened to them in their life that they are now expressing this anger, this um, this violence to other people. And so uh, to me, the true villain in the blog that I wrote was time and that many times and in many uh, entertainment forms, the villain is never given the time to truly develop as a character so that we can appreciate where they are coming from and why they are doing the things that they are doing. And when we get that, it's often that the villain isn't really that much different from us, or we might not have done, or we may have chosen a similar reaction to what was the crucible moment that they switched from good to evil or whatever it may have been that flipped the switch that started this antisocial behavior or whatever they may be doing. And so in many ways, a lot of the bad guys and villains that we see in entertainment, whether it's movies, TVs, I know it's a, it's a time compressed format, so we don't have that luxury like we do in, in, in books and other long formats um, where you can really get into that depth of character development. But many times it's just uh, they're disposable bad guys. And so we're really just watching them being in charge of the bad guys or being the head guy of the bad guys, but we're not really getting a chance to appreciate them being a villain with a motivation that suddenly gets to the awkward side of ourselves, which is, wow, I, 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 you know, in another life, I could see myself being that angry or being that frustrated or being that twisted or warped. And as closer as it gets to something I might consider, then that's the true discomfort. And now that's the real relationship that we have with the villain, capital V, is that we're starting to see some of ourselves 
in their background, in their backstory, in the decisions that they make. And we feel uncomfortable with that. Not because of what we see the destruction that they're doing on the screen, but because we're getting uncomfortable with how closely we're able to start to relate to this person. <laughs> and, and, and in that, there's that wonderful machination of, ooh, you know. Um, so at least for me, that's where I was going. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I, I guess I can bet cleanup. I mean, it's fascinating to me too that we all we all kind of came at this from one similar point of view, which is, yeah, villain, not as easy as you think, you know, not as simple as you think, maybe. I so I chose to write about uh, about Caliban, who is the the miscreant critter who lives on uh, the island of Prospero in Shakespeare's Tempest. He's always fascinated me as a character anyway, um, even in the way Shakespeare wrote him, because right from the get go, you know, he's described as, you know, vile and an animal and art thou a fish or art thou a, a man. But Shakespeare very carefully wrote scenes where we're very, very touched by him. It's like, hey, how come you're treating him so bad? You know, he, he's got feelings, too. So I always find no matter what the story is, even sometimes when it's hard to look at him. The villains, to me, are always the most fascinating characters. You know, they 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 just tend to be a little bit, a little bit less one-dimensional, frankly, than the heroes. So Caliban is that for sure. And over the arc of the story, you know, we don't learn too much about him. But one interesting sort of literary critical point of view on this that I that I really read up on was, and it really came to in a story I heard on the radio about what's called the Robin Island Shakespeare. So very briefly, when when Nelson Mandela was imprisoned on Robin Island there was a book of Shakespeare's plays and they passed it around and people read it and it became a, a metaphor. M many of the plays, particularly the Tempest became a metaphor for what they were going through as prisoners. So one of the ways Caliban is represented and the way critics now look at it is he is a metaphor for people who have been colonized. He, he if you think about it, Caliban was the indigenous people of that Island. Mm -hmm. Prospero and Miranda were not. They were dropped off there. They came from Europe to this island and, you know, he was immediately subjugated. Right. So so there's a whole other piece of metaphor here. So sometimes a villain's not always a villain, I guess, is where, is where I went. Um, so it's just fascinating to me about the notion that and we always talk about it. You know, you can't have a great story without conflict and you really can't have a conflict. And yes, unless you have some back and forth amongst the characters. But but to me, this notion in all forms, you know, you pick literature, pick games, pick films, pick books, who gets vilified and when are they vilified? And, you know, I think something Olivia brought up and Duncan, you brought it up too is, and I'd love to hear you guys riff on this a little, fascinates me is that notion that, yeah, the reason villains bug us a little is that's our shadow too. It's mm -hmm. the part of us we don't want to look at very much because you can go, uh, uh oh, I have met the enemy and he is me. So I don't know. You guys can go there if you want. But that that kind of always tickles me to think about. Doesn't Caliban speak in verse too, like the the Royal Shakespeare characters? He does. Yeah, he, he does speak in verse. And he, you know, he muses a lot. He muses about, I showed you the island. I taught you all of its secrets. I showed you where water was. I showed you where the sweet berries were. And then you locked me in a tree or you imprisoned me in a rock. I can't remember what he did, but. Arnold was the one who was imprisoned in a. Yeah, that's right. So he said, but why did you do that? You know? Um, so yeah. Imprisoned in a tree and Prospero saved them, which is why they are indebted to Prospero. Right. It's interesting to me that at the end of the Tempest, Prospero frees Ariel and they're allowed to go. And, and there's no, not a word to Caliban, if I remember correctly. 
Yeah, in fact, we don't know what happens to him. I'm assuming he got his island back. One thing that I'd add on to your your lens is, is also the why. Um, you know, why is this villain exist? If it's a morality play, then you're really just, you know, you're demonstrating appropriate behavior for the audience. And so you really want that shallow bad guy just because you're saying, you know, don't behave this way. But if it's more of an exploration into the human psyche or the, you know, the com- complexity of relationships, then the delineation really gets grayed out. And that creates that wonderful space of discomfort, as you were saying, where, you know, we have met the enemy and the enemy is me. So, um, you know, I think a, a good part of it is why are we communicating this story? And within that, there are some boundaries of why the villain exists and, and how rich that character can be. The interesting part about The Tempest is that, like, Prospero is kind of villainous, too, in his own way. Absolutely. He does not behave well a lot of the time. He's a very manipulative guy. <laughs> I mean, if you look at Song of the South... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's 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 culturally insensitive and it's out of place, out of time. But you know, if if you really watch the movie, the bad guys are the parents. The bad guys are yeah. the landed aristocracy. You know, right. and it, it's a very interesting twist on what you think you're going to see and what you think the story is going to be. And by the end of it, you you're you're right there with the kids. So to add to the complexity theory a little bit, if you think about current day villains, so Vader or or, Th- or Thanos, I mean they got where they were because some bad stuff happened to them. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, there's a kind of a karmic thing of, okay, yeah, I'm a bad guy, but let's not forget, I, you know, I went through some very hard stuff and I had to process it somehow. So I am the way I am for a reason, right? So Thanos is interesting, but Thanos is a fool because he gets the ability to create or destroy anything. And he thinks, you know what? I can save everything by destroying half of the universe or whatever it was, instead of just, you know what, I can make more resources because I have unlimited power now. Like, if you're going to be a god, be a benevolent one. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, but look, real life corollaries. It it, it occurred to me when you guys were talking a minute ago. I wonder, because, you know, there are villainous characters in real life, too. Right. And and who they are. Yeah. On your point of view, it depends on your lens. You know, one one person's villain is another person's hero, partic- particularly. And you know, we've been dancing all around politics, but since it's so prevalent right now, it's an easy place to see that. You know, you can. I rode my bike today, and you, you can ride through a neighborhood and tell who thinks who's a villain. You know, so I just wonder if you if you look at the fables that will come out of our era a hundred years hence, I want I wonder how all of this will play out in terms of the way new villains are created, you know, how, how does that go forward? Ask Christopher Columbus. Yeah. Yeah. Great example. Great example, Duncan, who was when I was a kid, which was, you know, granted in the stone age, but you know, we got a day off of school and what he's studying in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue and he came and yeah. discovered America. Yay. You know, he came over and made everybody sick and opened the door to Europeans coming, subjugating an entire people who already lived here. Which, by the way, we still don't talk about today in this country. We don't yeah. talk about the great American genocide in this country. You know, he was a bad guy. You know, he really was a bad guy. 
And well, in that note, it's interesting because of course they always say that the victors always write the history books. And when you're looking at a subject like Columbus, in my blog, I, I specifically called out uh, George Washington, actually, mm-hmm. because yeah. back at that time and in, in, in American history, he is canonized as, as a deific figure. Um, you know, somebody who was right and just in every way. Clearly, he had a lot of a lot of things that by today's standards, by any standards, are, are not to be celebrated and are not to be recognized. But in the his context and the time, thinking about how the British spoke about him during the American Revolution, you know, he was a traitor, he was a backstabber, he was a murderer, he was getting rid of, of he was getting rid of, of a government that, you know, they made themselves out to be one that was one to be respected and one that should stay around. But to this day, I, I don't know that British people still hold a grudge against George Washington. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, perhaps they do silently, but I, I, I don't know if it's there. But going back to the uh, the notion of time, I wonder if, in a sense, time can, can also erase ability in some cases oh. when the perceived good outweighs what in, in only contextually was considered evil. Yeah, yeah. George Washington was not standing next to Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> I, didn't, yeah. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Well, the other one, too, is is, you know, and I think we all touched on this in one way or another, but Olivia's notes about some of these classic mythological villains. Um, no great villain is all villain. They aren't villains. Yeah, well, they're not. They're, well, they are, but they aren't always. So sometimes, sometimes they're villainous, and sometimes they're not villainous. And I guess it also kind of depends on which side of the battle you're on. Yeah, or or moment in time. You've got benevolent gods doing terrible things to innocent people one night, and the next night they're you know saving the world. Yeah. If I'm going to bring up Zeus, any villainous <laughs> mythological character, it's going to be Zeus, man. Or Kronos. You know what? Kronos ate his kids. Um, <laughs> Zeus. We're not going to get started on Zeus. Because uh, I could go off. But, like, the men in the Greek pantheon, I will say, problematic. <laughs> No one knows about Hera, about how she was abused, and now she's just painted as this jealous wife. Like, it's not great. But also, it's interesting how, real world again, we don't just have historical figures that are larger than life deified characters. We have historical figures that are larger than life vilified characters, like mm-hmm. Hitler and Henry VIII. Um, I don't know if Henry VIII actually is vilified, but he's vilified by me because he was terrible. <laughs> Here's, here's where I think everybody agrees, and I, and I bet you most people do. The truth is we love our villains. I mean, we readers of engagers in stories, we really love our villains. As I, as I think I mentioned this in the blog, but, you know, imagine Star Wars without Vader. It's not possible. It's not mm-hmm. possible. You know, you, you just. Without Vader is uh, Kylo Ren. <laughs> so, so we love them. And, and they, they add a lot of the spice, obviously, and, and a lot of the juice to the tales we tell is, you know, dialing them up and down is is probably the fun part. I, as kind of a wrap up, I remember the story about, you know, when we were several years ago, we were all working on kind of a rethink of the of the Carmen Sandiego story. You know, one of my favorite characters, you know, and she's had a lot of lives as a game and, and as a television series. And uh, so one of the things was we updated her character and we turned her into that classic Captain Nemo villain with a heart of gold who, yeah, she goes around and does very bad things. She's a thief and a robber and a, but if you really look at her new backstory, the way we wrote it, she did them for a good reason. She was an environmental activist and she was 
she was a social justice activist and a lot of the bad things she did through her henchmen turned out to be for a very good reason for some other people. So, you know, that's, that's really the fun of it. Who's she stealing from? Uh, mo the way we wrote it, mostly guys, it's pretty fun to steal from big corporations. Oh, okay. Then we're, then we're good. She's not a villain. <laughs> yeah, we've we've lost the notion of, of time and history. Henry VIII may have been a very bad guy, but in doing what he did in establishing the Church of England, separating it from the Roman Catholic Church, he bred the underpinnings of British, or excuse me, at that time, English exceptionalism. And in that, that gave us the bedrock for American exceptionalism and the drive in the 20th century. Now you can also go full around and say, where has American exceptionalism gotten to, to this point, you know, with not having a, a, a good worldview or, 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 or collaborative view with the world. He established but, the Church of England so he could get a divorce, and then later he killed his 19-year-old yeah, wife. I'm so. not saying he wasn't a bad guy. I'm saying but bad guys can have good impact, you know? And again, yeah. there's that, you know, the, the conflict. Maybe, maybe that's transformative, right? Maybe it's not the bad guy who has the good impact. It's people take what the bad guy did, grab the pieces that might be beneficial, and say, well, let's build on those. I mean, sure. to your other point, any quote, good idea, overworked, quickly becomes a pretty rancid idea. To, to your point about, in, in my view, the extraordinarily jingoistic level people have taken the notion of American exceptionalism to, yep. is not healthy, it's not good for anybody. Hey, we need to wrap it up. So Olivia, you are the curator. Remind us, what is next month's topic? Next month, we have improvisation, which means this discussion will have no plans at all, and we will talk only about fish. Unlike this week, when it had no plans at all. So uh, we appreciate everybody being with us. We hope you'll look at the blogs at uh, Ideas On. So we'll see you next month. Thanks. <laughs>